Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for all your good gifts that you provide to us. And we thank you for this Bible study. We pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to your word and that it would sink in deep into our inmost being, Lord. We pray that you will be with Dane as he uh, teaches us. And we pray that you would be with Dane as he is preparing these two papers and, and working on his last final for Monday. Lord, that you would open up his mind to different ideas, help him to do a, a job well done. And we also pray for Sky that you would bless him and be with him as he is moving forward in his, his education. Thank you for McKinsey graduating. Lord, we just thank you for all these wonderful things happening and help us this evening to stay focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. So we are continuing in the fourth section uh, of our study. The first one was Revelation 1, our introduction. Uh, then we had, in lesson two, we started something called our foundation series. <laughs> We're spreading that out throughout the whole book of Revelation so that we uh, aren't spending seven weeks prior to Revelation studying the background to get us to the book of Revelation. Uh, section three was on the churches the seven churches, and now we've actually entered into uh, the, the uh, commencing judgment of Jesus Christ, starting in chapter four, and we're now in chapter six of Revelation. And chapter six brings us to probably the most famous portion of Revelation, which is the four horsemen. Um, so these are the first four of seven seals uh, in the document which Jesus Christ took from the hand of God the Father on the throne, and we identified that document as the title deed to earth. So these four uh, horsemen are the first four judgments uh, which are coming on the earth that will gradually loosen the grip uh, that Satan has on this earth, uh, moving towards the final redemption of this earth and Christ uh, taking back what was usurped by Satan. Uh, Robert Thomas, a Greek scholar, uh, has summarized the first five chapters of Revelation in this way. He says, Revelation 1 was John's preparation to receive the information of the book of Revelation. Now, I, I don't agree with his assessment of what Revelation 2 and 3 is doing in the book, uh, so I've changed that here, and I say Revelation 2 and 3 encouraged believers with the promise of their security through faith in Christ, while exhorting those in the churches who have not truly had faith to believe. Uh, Revelation 4 through 5 describes the throne room from where the dreaded punishment was to proceed and the seven-sealed scroll in that room, which contained the divine purging to come. Only now in chapter 6 does the revelation of those punishments begin, and along with the revelation, a dramatization by way of an advanced showing of the Lamb's implementation of those punishments against a rebellious world. So that's a kind of a lot to take in right there. But essentially what he's saying is, this is the beginning of judgments from Jesus Christ. Up until this point, all material has been prefatory, setting the stage for uh, the main content of this book, which is the judgments that are coming on this earth. Uh, so those begin here. Uh, with what we call the white horse. 
So could I have Callie, could you read verses one and two for us? Yeah, false peace. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold the white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Thank you. Uh, so the first thing we have to do is make some identifications. There are a couple different characters at play here in these first couple of verses, and we want to make sure that we're clear on uh, who each one of these uh, creatures or beings are. So we're going to start with uh, identifying the lamb who opens this scroll. The lamb is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, John 1.29, again, the same author as the book of Revelation, identifies the lamb um, specifically the Lamb of God as Jesus Christ. Uh, that Lamb we see again in heaven, and he is the worthy one who is able to take the scroll, the title deed of earth from the hand of God, and dole out these punishments on earth, which are uh, the just punishments uh, for unbelief. In Revelation 1, uh, 19, it gives us an outline of this book. It says that it's going to deal with things past. That's Christ's past accomplishments. It's going to deal with things present, the present church age, and then it's dealing with things future. This uh, seven-sealed scroll, which the Lamb is opening, is specifically in the section of things future. Uh, so any attempt to find these in, in past um, his, history is kind of a fruitless effort. These were not intended in context uh, or in the progress of revelation to reveal things that have already happened, rather they're prophetic uh, and still remain prophetic to this day. As long as the church is on this earth, uh, these will remain future. So Revelation 1.9 identifies this section of the book of Revelation as dealing specifically with future prophecy, what we call eschatology. Revelation 4.1, uh, begins the future portion of the book of Revelation. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And these things that had just been concluded uh, was the, uh, the era or the generations of the church. So this is after the church uh, these things will take place. In Revelation 5.5 5 and 5.7, yeah, 5, uh, the author of Revelation says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So John is seeing these things as if, they are happening in present time. But the nature of ecstatic dreams, which were given to the prophets, is that they see uh, the future reality of what God will do as if it were happening in present time. Uh, they even speak of these truths as present or past at times uh, because of the certainty with which they will happen. And if you look back in this uh, in Revelation 4.1, this uh, auxiliary verb must 
In the Greek, that's dei, D-E-I, and it connotes divine necessity, that there is no option but for these things to take place. So that's why John is giving these revelations to us in present tense, because their certainty, certainty is absolute. Uh, so it shouldn't bother us when we're going through Revelation and we see some things in present or past tense. Uh, we're going to look at the context of the book to see whether or not that is present or past or future. Uh, one peculiar aspect of the Greek language is that their past, present, and future times don't actually connote times on a timeline. It uh, has more to do with the aspect, whether or not the action is completed, in progress, uh, etc. So we have to look at other, uh, other words such as adverbs of time to give us that timing and whether or not it's taking place before or after other events. So we just want to be careful with that as we go through uh, the book of Revelation from this point forward. The, uh, the lamb is the one opening these seals, and these seals will be opened in the future. They have not been opened yet. Uh, in verse 2, we're introduced to a white horse. The rider of the white horse is carrying a bow. He's wearing a crown, and his purpose is to conquer. Uh, the minority view, uh, actually, there's a few different views of who this uh, rider of the white horse is. The most popular minority view, not the most popular overall, um, is that this rider is Jesus Christ. Uh, this is actually a pretty easy mistake to make uh, because in Revelation 19.11, when Jesus Christ is seen coming back to the earth, he's identified as riding a white horse. Uh, so in Revelation 19.11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So for some, they've drawn a connection uh, between these two horses and tried to identify them as the same. Uh, this is a logical fallacy. Uh, similarities don't make um, e uh, equal identity. It's called an illegitimate totality transfer. Uh, you can't take a part of a whole and say that it's equally identified because it shares certain aspects or certain parts. Oh, excuse me. Uh, but it is a pretty pervasive view. Uh, even, even people in the dispensational camp, as well as reformed camps and others uh, that are more conservative, make this, uh, make this identification. Uh, Someone, Sherry, would know Zane Hodges. Uh, he holds to this view that this is Jesus Christ uh, on this riding this horse. Uh, so you will encounter this view. I'm going to show you a couple reasons why I find this to be an erroneous view. Uh, so there, there are similarities. Both riders are riding a white horse. Uh, but one is called faithful and true, and he comes and he brings an everlasting uh, peace. They both come in a form of conquering, uh, but their differences are a little more, uh, a little more than their similarities. For example, the rider of the first white horse has a bow, but there's no mention of any arrows. 
and in the Greek, when a bow is mentioned, the arrows are also mentioned. So it stands out that there are no arrows mentioned here. Uh, and the rider of the second white horse, which we rightfully identify as Jesus, um, has a two-edged sword, not a bow. The first rider in, in the, the first rider of the white horse wears a victor's crown called the Stephanos. This is given to, for example, the church for uh, victorious uh, living. They're given a Stephanos because they had victory. Uh, whereas the second rider is wearing a king's crown, the diadema. Uh, and this is uh, inherent authority within him uh, that he has this king's crown. So this identifies him as Christ or God. Whereas the first wearing a victor's crown just shows that he is successful in his conquering. Uh, the first one, and I think this is the most dramatic difference, the first one brings a temporary peace. When Christ returns to this earth, the peace that he brings will not be temporary. It will be everlasting. Uh, so I think that point alone disqualifies this horse from uh, being identified with Jesus Christ. Uh, what I do think this horse is representative of uh, is the satanic imposter of Jesus Christ, which is one reason why it presents itself in similarity with Jesus Christ. It's going to come looking like Jesus, but it's not him. So the identification of this horse with Jesus Christ uh, is kind of exactly the point. Uh, he's going to come looking and sounding a lot like the Messiah that many are still looking for. In John 5, Jesus Christ warns Israel of this fact. He says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him, or you will receive him. So I think this is the ultimate uh, coming of one whom the world will receive, um, though they rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, this is uh, very common. In fact, it's been said that Satan's not a very creative guy. Uh, he copies and mimics all that God has done. And it, it's in keeping with um, his purpose. His purpose is to ascend to the throne of God. He mimics the way that God rules and the way that God organizes himself even. Uh, in the book of Revelation, we'll be introduced to the satanic trinity. Uh, and this is uh, a demonic replica of the holy trinity, where we'll have Satan himself ruling over a man the beast or the antichrist who is in place of Christ on this earth and will have a false prophet or the anti-spirit which is in place of the Holy Spirit. This is Satan's attempt to recreate the Holy Trinity for his own purposes. Uh, so we are going to see things that look an awful lot like Christ but we have to be careful when we're identifying things in the book of Revelation. We need to take all details into account. So Clarence Larkin, one of our favorite uh, favorite Baptist ministers from the previous century, says about the Antichrist, the rider has a bow, no arrow is mentioned, and he is not crowned at first, but a crown will be given to him later. The Stephanos, our victor's crown, has a reward for his victories, which are prolonged and bloodless. 
This is a picture of a brilliant, strategical, and irresistible conqueror whose victories will dazzle the world and elevate him to a leadership that will place him at the head of the 10 federated kingdoms of the revived Roman Empire. Uh, I'm just realizing that some of this might be um, beyond what we've explained at this point. The 10 federated kingdoms of the revived Roman Empire comes from a few passages in Daniel, uh, specifically Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 2 gives a prophetic of what is called the times of the Gentiles. It starts with the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar, continues to the uh, iron body of Medo-Persia, and uh, yeah, Medo-Persia, and then the uh, the silver legs of no, sorry, silver body Medo-Persia, iron legs of Greece and then the uh, clay and iron feet of Rome. But uh, the Roman Empire, it speaks of in a different way than it speaks of the first three. It speaks of it in two parts. One part um, being the, the clay feet and the other part being the 10 toes. Uh, later on in the book of Daniel in chapter seven, it speaks of these uh, 10 empires rather than the toes of the world kingdoms as 10 horns. Uh, and these ten, to 10 horns, the book of Daniel tells us, are representative of 10 kings uh, from which the Antichrist will arise. So um, continuing on here with Clarence Larkin's quote, he says, as a subaltern like ne Napoleon I, he will rise from the ranks until a crown will be given him. His triumphs will be due to his skillful diplomacy. Like Antiochus and Epiphanes, his prototype, he will come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Daniel 11.21 uh, gives us this information. As the tool of Satan, he will be endowed with wonder-working powers. And when he comes, he will find the world ready to receive him. For God will send upon its inhabitants a strong delusion that they will believe a lie or the lie, for that is what he will be. And that information comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, uh, which I have in here later on. Uh, but first, this piece um, that this first horse represents is given to us in more detail in Daniel 11. It says, in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is speaking of a future leader who will arise on the world scene, uh, accumulating power to himself uh, on the wings of peace. He'll come saying, peace and prosperity, peace and tranquility, uh, but the peace won't be very long lasting. Uh, this future uh, man who is spoken of uh, is a deceiver. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10, Paul warns about this man, saying, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders 
and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So remember our discussion through the seven churches. These seven churches are representative of saved peoples throughout the, uh, the millennia of the church. Yet Paul here is warning some of them uh, that they would perish uh, because they have not received the love of the truth. And he's warning them that if they do not um, believe the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, then they will be subject to uh, this end times deception. In Daniel 7, uh, Daniel speaks of this future leader as, a, as the little horn. He says, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. That's speaking of the ten horns that Daniel saw. Um, so a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Another uh, translation of boasts from the original Aramaic is blasphemies. So he is uttering blasphemies. And blasphemy is essentially uh, false identification of Jesus Christ. He's identifying himself as Jesus Christ. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, the prototype of this Antichrist, entered into the temple of Jerusalem and called and set up idols uh, that were not Christ, that were not God, uh, and called them to be God. Uh, Jesus Christ warns of one who would come like Antiochus Epiphanes, and um, he called it the uh, desolation or the abomination of desolation, where one would stand in the temple and call himself God. And this is speaking of the future Antichrist, uh, who will profane the temple that will be rebuilt and call himself God. And those are the great boasts that he will be uttering. Uh, in Daniel 8, 9 through 10, uh, continuing on this theme of the little horn, Daniel writes, Out of one of them came a fourth, a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, the beautiful land being Israel. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. This is identifying this fourth horn or the one that uh, plucks out the other three horns. Um, it's identifying him with the power of Satan here. Uh, that it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. Uh, those stars that fall to the earth, we'll see later in Revelation 12, um, that that was the activity of Satan when a third of the angels fell with him. Um, Okay, we're almost through Daniel here. He continues. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Uh, this is speaking of the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist will enter into the kingdom or into the uh, temple that will be rebuilt during the tribulation. Um, and he will put an end to the sacrifices that will be restarted from the beginning of that tribulation. 
and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So at that point, at least by the middle of the uh, tribulation, which that is speaking of, a peace agreement that it had with Israel will be um, will come to an end. And this peace agreement is the initiation of the, uh, the tribulation period. We spoke before of the rapture of the church um, when we were speaking of the resurrections. This was prior to uh, looking at chapter four of Revelation. The rapture of the church is not the beginning of the tribulation. It will probably happen at some point in close proximity to it. Um, but it, it actually is not the um, initiating event. The initiating event for the tribulation that is coming on the earth is when Israel signs a treaty with the Antichrist, um, when the Antichrist is offering peace. And this peace agreement is, agreement is detailed in Daniel 9.27. Daniel says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many, for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So let me see, are we at? Yeah. Uh, so the identification of this white horse, I believe, is uh, in conjunction with the Antichrist. Now, we'll see that these horses don't represent a single person, but it represents uh, the activities of a single person or the, uh, I guess the activities that this single person's government will be involved in. Um, so the rider of the white horse may be identified as the Antichrist, but the whole image that we're looking at here is, is really the Antichrist movement that will be taking place during the tribulation period. And is letting us know here that he will come on the wings of peace, that he will come promising peace and prosperity. Uh, but as is clear in these passages from the Old Testament about this future Antichrist, uh, this peace is not long-lasting. It's not everlasting like the peace that Jesus Christ will bring. And in fact, in fact, it doesn't even come with the purpose of peace, but the purpose of gathering power to itself. This kingdom that the Antichrist will rule over uh, has actually been in existence since some of the earliest chapters of Scripture, uh, which is... How many years ago? 4,500 years ago, 5,000 years ago, uh, with Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 10, 9, uh, we're letting know about the first ruler of this kingdom. And it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the, in the land of Shinar. So we're all pretty familiar with the events that happened at Babel. 
Uh, they attempted to make a name for themselves apart from God uh, to reach their tower to the heavens, um, very similar to Satan's, um, Satan's purpose, which we're told about in uh, the book of Ezekiel, no, in the book of yeah, Ezekiel, uh, where he uh, wishes to put himself above the throne of heaven. Uh, he has continually tricked man into thinking that they as well can be like gods. And this was the deception at Babel as well. Uh, men trying to uh, create for themselves a name or fame or even life apart from God. Dwight Pentecost has this to say about Nimrod's kingdom. He says, Nimrod led a rebellion against God as an administrator in Satan's kingdom of darkness. As a mighty hunter, literally against the Lord, Nimrod hunted for the souls of men to lead them in rebellion and into the kingdom of darkness. He fled from the place of revelation and from the people who believed God's revelation, and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Remember, it had already been said of Nimrod that the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, or Babel, as the King James Version uh, puts it. Pentecost continues, he says, Babel may be translated the gate of God. In other words, Babel became the administrative center of the false kingdom of Satan, in which Nimrod had made himself the ruling authority, as Cain had done before him. Nimrod built a fortified city. In the center of that city, Nimrod's followers built an awesome tower that reaches to the heavens. This tower was designated or was designed to be a symbol of strength to this people who had united together under Nimrod, as well as a symbol of a new religion Nimrod offered them. This uh, sub-theme of Babel and Babylon continues throughout the entirety of scripture, starting here in uh, Genesis 10, continuing all the way until uh, the 18th chapter of Revelation, the presence of this anti-God city uh, is replete throughout scripture. Uh, though it's not mentioned much in the New Testament, uh, all the way up through the prophets in the Old Testament, Babylon is the anti-Israel, the anti-Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to see a resurrection of this city uh, just like the head of the statue, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon from Daniel 2, this city will return, and as its head will be the Antichrist, who comes in a very similar way to Nimrod, uh, who founded Babel. Ironside says about the Antichrist, this rider on the white horse evidently pictures man's last effort to bring in a, uh, a reign of order and peace while Christ is still rejected. It will be the world's greatest attempt to pull things together after the church is gone. It will be the devil's cunning scheme from bringing in a mock millennium without Christ. So I don't know if we've talked about it in our Revelation classes specifically, but we have discussed it in our foundations um, units, where God's creation purpose was for a kingdom mediated through a man. And Adam failed in that task and ceded this kingdom of earth 
to Satan. And we looked at multiple scriptures which identify Satan as the current ruler or the god of this world. God's purpose throughout history, alongside the redemption of man, has been the return of this kingdom. This kingdom will be ruled by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But until he returns to rule that kingdom, Satan is making all efforts to formulate that kingdom himself. Um, just as the seed of the woman results in Jesus Christ, who is the redemption of those who have faith in God's promises on the basis of Christ's uh, death on the cross, so Satan as well has a seed, and that seed uh, has a similar purpose to God's seed, but rather than a benevolent purpose, has a very malevolent purpose. Uh, so this is the mimic of God, the mimic of uh, Christ, the, uh, the king of God's kingdom. This antichrist will be the human king of, the, of Satan's uh, attempts to bring in the kingdom apart from God and apart from Christ. So this false peace, uh, the rider on the white horse is the antichrist movement out of which the Antichrist himself will emerge preeminent. It is a continuation of Babel and Babylon and is Rome's second phase. He will be accepted by Israel and he will bring apparent peace for a time. All right, let's see, Mark, could I have you read uh, Revelation 6, 3 and 4 for us? Okay, let me, um, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out and to him who sat on it, and it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Thank you. So, uh... <clears throat> In these first few seals, uh, verses 1, 3, 5, and 7 are very repetitive of one another, uh, where it's the lamb opening the first seal, the second seal, the third seal. Uh, these consecutive numbers uh, give us a chronology of these seals. Uh, again, some disagree with that. Some think that these seals, trumpets, or bowls can be put in any um, in any order, but it kind of goes against the laws of Greek grammar. Uh, there is no grammatical evidence, there is no contextual evidence um, to rearrange these. They're given to us specifically in a sequential order, and it would be best in maintaining a literal translation to maintain as well the order that they're given to us in. Another reason uh, why it's difficult to rearrange the order of these is that they're, they kind of act like Russian stacking dolls. The last seal opens up the seven trumpet judgments. The last trumpet opens up the seven bowl judgments. So if they're rearranged, it becomes difficult to explain how the last of each uh, round of judgment begins the next round of judgment. Uh, my personal opinion on this is that any attempt to rearrange the order isn't an attempt to seek 
to understand the book of Revelation, but to fit it into a preconceived theology. Uh, rather, we have to be prepared to change our theology based upon scripture's revelation, because scripture is the revelation of God himself. Uh, so we want to do our best to let scripture interpret scripture, uh, rather than letting our theology interpret scripture. Uh, so for that reason, I'll be presenting these seals as progressive or uh, chronological um, judgments that come on the earth. And it also gives us consistency uh, with the purpose of this uh, seven sealed document. The seven seals are really the entirety of the judgments. It just so happens that the seventh article has seven clauses. And that seventh clause of the seventh article has seven parts. Uh, so again, these logically and contextually depend on a chronological order. Uh, so this second seal uh, that is being opened, this will take place after the peace of the white horse. So we're seeing that the peace that is brought in by the white horse will in fact come to an end. So we know again that that is not Jesus Christ's peace because when he comes bringing his peace, it will be an everlasting peace. Now you can see I've put images of these four uh, living creatures underneath these first four seals. Um, these are the only judgments which are specifically announced by the four living creatures, but there is nothing in the text which specifically identifies one judgment with one living creature. As you go through, some will identify, for example, the lion is the first seal, the ox is the second seal. But uh, within the text, it does not name which living creature. It says the first, the second, the third, and the fourth. I think the subjugation of the name of the living creature is showing us that it is not important which one. Um, is opening up which seal. Uh, any attempt to find a link between them could possibly be in danger of just extrapolating on, on one's imagination. Uh, it's not to say I can be dogmatic about that. It just seems that the text is trying to minimize, uh, minimize which one is opening it while maintaining the fact, the truth of it being announced by these four living creatures. Uh, but remember, the four living creatures we identified as the, uh, the characteristics of God. That's not the word I used, but I can't recall the word that we've used before. Uh, and I think the important thing to take from the fact that these four living creatures are announcing these judgments is that these judgments are coming from the throne of God, uh, that these judgments are not the uh, wrath of Satan on the earth, that these are the specific uh, judgments of God on the earth. And again, uh, important to review those foundation uh, videos if you haven't. The uh, basis for these first four seals, um, actually for all, all of the seals, actually come from the Noahic covenant, that it is the world's uh, failure to abide by the Noahic covenant that justifies this wrath. Um, and um, as well, in tandem with the unbelief of those 
who have remained, um, who have rejected Christ. Those two facts, hand in hand, uh, legally justify God's wrath on the earth. Uh, so here, Robert Thomas, again, our Greek scholar, uh, who gave us the summary of the first five chapters, he speaks uh, about these, this use of cardinal numbers. He says the cardinal neon uh, can mean first, though another word, protos, is the more common word used for an ordinal to convey this meaning. The use of the words that are distinctively ordinal numbers in the listing Enlisting the rest of the seals argues for the ordinal meaning here. In other words, he's trying to say that um, these numbers specifically denote order, uh, that one precedes another, uh, not that they are just given arbitrary numbers, but that they actually come in a sequence. All right, so this uh, command that we see repeated as well for each of the four uh, horses is erkomai in the Greek, uh, which means both to go and to come. Uh, its voice is unique uh, to the Greek language where we have an active and a passive voice. Greek actually has three voices, an active, middle, and a passive. The middle voice is similar to our reflexive, uh, meaning that the subject uh, when doing the verb, the verb will have some effect back on the subject. So erkomai, meaning come or go, means that the in order for the verb to take place, the subject will be affected as well as uh, doing this verb. And it's in a command form, an imperative. Um, so we naturally have to identify who exactly or what exactly is being commanded to come. Uh, so there's four options here. Uh, it can be summoning John. Some, some scholars, some students see this as a command to John, uh, especially because there is a participle um, as well, uh, meaning see. So some in the, I think it's the NIV, but at least in the King James Version, it'll say come and see as if it's commanding John to come and look at this judgment. But that participle uh, is better translated as the actual, uh, the present tense that John is saying, and I saw. So the, the four living creatures are announcing this command, come. And then John starts another statement saying, and then I saw. Um, so rather than these four living creatures calling John saying, come and look at this. Um, they're saying, come, and then John sees what is obeying this commandment. The other option is that it's summoning Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Jesus, the lamb, is already there and present. Um, I don't think there's much evidence in the context for this. In fact, I'm not quite sure why some have identified this as Jesus Christ. Um, but suffice it to say, there's just no contextual reason why it would be Jesus Christ. Uh, my guess would that it would fit into someone's theological scheme rather than into the actual um, context of these verses. Uh, a pretty good uh, possibility is that they are summoning the four horsemen. Uh, I should say the four, not the fourth. Uh, so when the living creature says, come, one of the four horsemen comes, 
but uh, a minority view, and in fact, I haven't heard many hold to this view, uh, a minority view that I think has some uh, good foundation is that it's actually the summoning of the wrath of the Lamb, because we're going to see this repeated not just for the uh, four horsemen, but for the uh, fifth and sixth seal as well. Uh, and then in Revelation 6, 15 through 17, we're actually given the, like, the conclusio of these commands to come. And it's identified as the wrath of the Lamb. So in Revelation 6, 15 to 17, actually, Kelly, could I have you read this for us? Did you ask me to read that? Yeah, if you could. Yeah. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to, and who is able to stand. Thank you. Uh, so one thing that's pretty common in Greek uh, writing is uh, identifying uh, verbal themes that present themselves and verbs are one way that a writer will tie his thoughts together. So the re repetition in each verse of this word come or erkomai uh, can't really be dismissed where it appears here uh, in the perfect tense in Revelation 6 or 617. Uh, so what I believe is happening here is that these living creatures are calling for the wrath of God to come on the earth. Uh, we'll see this as well in uh, the fifth seal where the martyrs are calling for justice uh, to come. When will we be, uh, when will we be, uh, re not redeemed, uh, Basically, when will you punish those who, who killed us wrongly? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so I think here, uh, this is that capstone on these commands to come, where the world finally realizes what exactly um, is happening right now on the earth. Uh, and it is interesting that they, it takes them until the sixth seal, uh, sixth of seven, to finally admit that this is the wrath of the Lord. Um, as we saw with the uh, white horse, this takes place after the rapture of the church. Uh, possibly the entrance of this, um, this antichrist ruler is accepted on the basis of some sort of world cataclysm, like the disappearance of uh, thousands to millions of people. Uh, we could probably wax eloquent on, on what exactly brings about uh, this world government. Uh, but uh, it's, it seems to me that if the rapture precedes the tribulation, then it should be pretty clear to most what has happened when suddenly uh, my Christian relatives, my Christian friends are gone. Uh, you would think that one might think of this uh, promise of the rapture of the church, which has been very popularized in recent, um, 
in modern day Christianity. It's by no means a new idea. Uh, even Paul held to the, uh, to the imminent return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the living church. Uh, but in modern day, it's become very popularized with book series like the Left Behind series. Um, by no means a perfect representation of what the rapture will be like. Uh, but, you know, everyone's going to have a little different interpretation of, of what exactly takes place before, during, and after. And uh, it's interesting to me that it, it takes the people on earth so long to realize that this is the wrath of God. Uh, but by the sixth seal, uh, they will have realized that. So the red horse, uh, it's introduced in a unique way. The other three are introduced in a very uniform way. Uh, the first, the third, and the fourth. But this one is introduced as another. Uh, so we're going to discuss why that is. Um, it's a red horse. Uh, there are other red horses in scripture, so we're going to look at those horses as well. But its express purpose is to remove peace. When it removes the peace, war ensues. It, he is given a great sword, and we'll discuss who gives him that great sword. So here, this second horse is introduced in a unique way. Uh, for the first, uh, first, third, and fourth, John says, I looked and behold a white horse. I looked and behold a black horse. I looked and behold an ashen horse. But in the second one, he says, and another, a red horse, went out. He does not, uh, he does not give us that uniform, I looked and behold. Why is that? I think it has specifically to do with the meaning of the word another. In Greek, there are two words for another, alos and heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. For example, we have a fruit, and then we have alos fruit, another of the same kind of fruit. For the apples as well, we have a fruit and alos fruit, the same. But down here, uh, we have a fruit and heteros fruit, another fruit, but of a different kind. So when he is speaking of another horse, a red horse, he's saying another horse, but it's of the same kind. Uh, this is yet another reason why I do not believe Jesus Christ is the first white horse, because it identifies the red horse as another horse of the same kind. And Jesus Christ is not um, able to be identified as similar with this red horse. So this red horse comes and it bears striking resemblance to the white horse. Um, he is, in essence, the other side of the same coin. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, Paul says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brother, uh, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. I think these horsemen are the labor pains that Paul is speaking of. Uh, it will be calling for peace and safety with the white horse, and then suddenly destruction uh, will come upon the earth with the opening of the second seal, the red horse of war. Ironside corroborates this. He says the rider on the blood red horse has a sword. It speaks of warfare, 
of a different type altogether than from that of the bow. Man wrestling with man, nation with nation, internal strife, class wars, civil wars, the breaking up of all established order is here set forth. So at Satan's first attempt to create this kingdom apart from God, apart from Christ, the rightful king, it's not going to last long. He is incapable. And in fact, his purpose is not even to bring a perfect kingdom of peace, but to accumulate uh, power and glory to himself, power and glory which is not deserving of Satan, but only deserving of God. And for that purpose, uh, the kingdom will quickly collapse into itself. In fact, the, the kingdom uh, that we see in Revelation is ferocious, to be sure, but not stable in the least. Uh, there is no stability to that kingdom. Uh, in Zechariah 6, 1 through 3, uh, we see a similar set of horses. Uh, so in Zechariah, the prophet says, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. So the difference here would be the dappled horses rather than green or ashen horses. Uh, but we do have red horses, black horses, and white horses. So it's worth uh, taking a look at. Uh, in Zechariah 6, 4 through 6, they're identified. Uh, Zechariah says that I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. So these horses are specifically identified uh, with the four spirits of heaven. I think these are the four living creatures. One reason why the four living creatures are those which are announcing these horses. Um, if we continue here in Zechariah 6, 7 through 8, he says, When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to to me and spoke to me saying, see those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. These are tools of God's wrath. Uh, these are not identified with Satan's wrath, though Satan's wrath is the, uh, the allowance which these horsemen uh, will come on the heels of. God often allows men to destroy themselves uh, in judgment. And uh, that is why this second horse is given a two-edged sword. Uh, do I have that quote? I don't, I think I have it later on. Uh, in Isaiah 65, 12, uh, we see divine judgment on Israel from God. Uh, Isaiah says, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, 
in chapter 19, we will see Jesus Christ coming with a sword. And this, uh, at this time, Jesus Christ himself will destroy the enemies. But uh, up until that point, God essentially allows men to act on their own evil desires. And these evil desires, uh, though they are not uh, glorifying to God, he will allow them to happen. Similarly to Job, when God allows Satan to tempt Job, it leads to his glory uh, in that, uh, for example, in the context of Job, uh, Job did not, uh, uh, did not deny God. Uh, so Job was tested and sifted, just like Peter was tested and sifted uh, by Satan. Well, we're going to see a very similar situation here where God does not instigate the war, but he allows men to fight against themselves. Um, so he even goes so far as to give the sword, which will uh, affect this judgment. And that is the sword given to the red horse, I believe. In 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen through 21, uh, we see more of the divine instrument of God where Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all, the, of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed a disaster against you. So we see that God in heaven conferring with uh, the spirits around the throne has allowed one spirit to be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of prophets. Um, the prophets uh, surely shared this information with Ahab of their own free will, but these deceiving spirits gave them false, uh, false information to go on. Uh, so we see the instruments of God uh, being utilized to bring about uh, judgments and disaster against his enemies but they still act in their own free will. So this war that follows peace, uh, the false peace will be exposed. God will remove the restraints and war will ensue. God himself may give his enemies the very sword with which they will destroy themselves. Mm -hmm.